going to share just a little bit, and I'd ask you if you'd like to, to go back with me to John chapter 4, where we were this morning, to the woman at the well. I won't go back through the story, but I will tell you that it was quite a surprise to me in the restudying of this story, that when Jesus told her to go get her husband, and she said that she didn't have one, and Jesus said, you spoke correctly because you have been married five times, and the man that you are with now is not your husband. Again, I wish I had seen this a long time ago, because I have taught, as, as I'm sure many of you have been taught, that what Jesus was doing in that moment was re- revealing the sin that was in her life, making her deal with that sin, kind of bringing it to the surface so that it had to be dealt with before she could step into the fullness of all that he was truly offering, that she could take that drink. But it was quite a surprise when I read and heard that one simple truth that in that day, men could divorce women for almost any reason, but women could not for any reason. It was impossible for a woman to divorce a man. So when you get that one fact down, you realize that what Jesus was dealing with was not her sin. What Jesus was dealing with was her rejection. She had been rejected and rejected and rejected. And the man that she's living with now who would not marry her, was doing exactly that same thing. And Jesus is telling her in a very deep and a profound way, I will not agree with those voices, agree with that pain, agree with that rejection, that Jesus was telling her that you were valuable to me, that I love you. You're valuable to me. You are worthy of my truth. You're worthy of my love. And again, as as I said this morning, it was against the law for a man to teach a woman from the Torah or the Talmud. It was wrong for a man to teach a woman anything. I read one quote by, by one of those older prophets that says, I'd rather burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. That was the attitude in the culture of the day. And Jesus was telling them, showing his disciples, telling us now that everything she had against her, the fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was a Samaritan, and the fact that she was scorned, All the ugly things that had ever been said, all the voices that had ever hurt her did not matter to him. I love the story. I love the truth of it, that he was dealing with her rejection because he knew that would be something deep within her would be what would stop her from stepping in and taking that drink that he was offering. Because he was telling her, if you want to be, you can be free from all of that today. There's no reason for all of that old to have a moment in your future at all. He died to separate us from that past. He died so that I don't have to be encumbered by the brokenness and the bitterness of that past life. We talk about this often. He did it. He came in the fullness of the story, even asking the rich young ruler when he said, keep all the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, I've done that since I was a child. He said, you just lack one thing then. Go and sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. What was he telling this man to do? I need you. If you're going to step into the future I have planned, I need you to separate yourself, become disengaged from the past that's dragging you down. We see that happening in the story of this woman. I want to read just the end of the story, beginning in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him 
for the saying of the woman, which testified. And remember, I said this morning, one of the characteristics of the way they treated women was they could not vote and they could not testify. They would not be allowed in a courtroom because the basic thought of women was that they are liars and unstable and could not be trusted in the courtroom. So they couldn't testify. They couldn't own land. But here she is going back into her city and she testified and told them all that he ever did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days and many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. What happened in this story? She moved from being captive to her past to a powerful minister who began a revival unlike her city had ever seen. And to the degree that Jesus stayed there a couple of days. Can you imagine all because of what one woman would do? Because she dealt with that rejection. She didn't let it rise up and stop anything that she was, would accept from Jesus on that day. I want to tell you, this was no easy matter of what she had to overcome. When she started back to the city, she had to be so convinced that what Jesus could do, what Jesus had done was so powerful that it overcame every ounce of fear, every uncertainty, every doubt, everything was overcome in that moment because she dealt with those limitations she saw within herself, everything that disqualified her. Again, I told you this morning, she was surprised that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan. The disciples were surprised that he was talking to a woman. And he was telling his disciples in no uncertain terms, with an absolute certainty, if you want to know what the kingdom looks like, how we treat each other in the kingdom, this is it. We have no privilege of devaluing any person. I don't care what has happened in their life. I don't care what history they carry. I don't care how many times the voices and those people around them have rejected them. We know in her life there were at least six that she had been rejected. What an amazing testimony afterward when she would overcome what, what she believed about herself to believe for a moment only those things that Jesus would say to her. I want to tell you, there's not a day when Jesus will tell you, you disappoint me. There's not a day when we stand before our Father and he'll say that you're not acceptable to me. There's not a point of rejection out there for us. There's not a point of disappointment. I hope we get this. I hope this is what we share out there. That I can't do anything today to, to make God love me more. I can't do anything to make today to make God love me less. I can't perform better and hope he's more pleased. I can't perform poorly and expect that he would treat me as I have performed. Not even a chance. His love for us is fixed in him, not in us. We can't change it. He's not going to react to us. When we begin to get that, we will understand the dynamic of what happened in this woman's life. That she could go back to the city and testify, come and see. Come and meet this one who has changed my life. And can change yours. So she moved from captivity from her past into ministry. The next story, if you flip back just a few pages to John chapter 9. I'll begin reading with verse 24. Again, a very familiar and well-taught story. This man had been healed. It had upset the Pharisees. They came asking questions of the parents. And this was the parents' response. Again, in, in verse 23. Therefore said his parents, he is of age. Ask him. Then again, call they the man that was blind and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. 
One thing I know that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, what did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, why herein is a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is. And yet he hath opened my eyes. Now you know that God hears not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doth his will, him he hears. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. So here is another man. He was not captive to his past. This man was captive to a physical situation, a physical limitation, and he had experienced it. He knew it well. But what happened in that moment of encounter? What happens when we encounter him? Again, we have taught so long, become so smart in the scripture, and we hold God at this concept level. But to most Christians, he's not real. He has no power to affect me today in my current story. He's a concept that we know, not a revelation that we encounter. He's not a person that actually can do something. Well, I want to tell you in every story that we read within the Gospels, when we read them as we continue through the letters that Paul wrote, every time that there was greatness and occurred in someone's life, is when they had an encounter with Jesus. I want to tell you, they walked away from that moment as if that former life did not exist. They didn't limp when he healed them. They didn't wear glasses when he healed their eyes. Every one of those people walked away from those moments of encounter as if that former life did not even exist. Well, I want to tell you today that the healing of God and his willingness to encounter us in our situations is as powerfully true now as it was then. We can walk away from those things in our life as if those former lives did not exist. He died to make sure that was true. What's the key then? What, how do we get there? Well, we have shared many times, and I will share many more, that the greatness in the kingdom, what makes us great before God, is not what we do. It's not how much we can do. It's not where we go. It's not how many mission trips we take. It's not how many Bible studies I teach or, or Sunday school classes I teach or how often I'm in church. What makes us great in the kingdom of God is, again, it's not what we can do. What makes us great in the kingdom is how much we can receive. If you have $10 in the bank, how much can you give? I can give $10. If you have $10 million in the bank, how much can you give? I can give $10 million. If we have the love that we can manufacture within our heart, if we have the love that only comes from within inside us, how much love am I going to be able to share? Only that puny love that doesn't amount to much and is very conditional based on how somebody treats me. What if I have received the love of God in the fullness of all that that love intended to do? What if I'm filled with that love of God? How much can I give? I can give the love of God because I have received the love of God. The power, the authority, the kindness, the goodness, all that we have received of him that came to us by the Holy Spirit. All of those things I can now give away to others because of what I received, not what I do. 
what was great in this man's life was that in that moment when God turned to him, when Jesus turned to him and healing was offered, this man had enough sense to recognize it and receive the healing that was being offered. We have to have this major shift in our intellect, in our Christian lives. God is not a magician. He is not doing tricks at our request. He's a benevolent father who is giving us gifts that have to be received. We get this very clearly. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. He gave us the universe. But unto those who would receive, he gave power to become the sons of God. The offer was made. What still had to be done? Received. At Pentecost, he gave the Holy Spirit. What still had to be done? The Holy Spirit had to be received. Every time we encounter one of these moments, something was done, a gift was offered, and someone received it. The reason that we walk in such limited relationship with God is because we think, we live in the disappointment that we ask him to do something. He didn't wiggle his nose and as a magician make it happen. What we fail to recognize that he offers us a gift that when we can receive the fullness of it, that encounter will change our life completely. Paul again is the perfect example. We'll get to Paul in just a minute. This man, because of what Jesus did in this moment, left a physical limitation and stepped immediately into ministry. There wasn't a lot of training. There wasn't a seminary in there anywhere. What happened was he had an encounter with Jesus and you could not stop him from stepping into ministry. I tell you, when somebody has an encounter, you can't stop them. I remember when I was eight and I accepted Jesus as my savior sitting on the bed beside my mom in a little house that we lived in down on the south end of town. I could go down and stand, even though there's another house there. If you gave me a minute, I could stand within a 10-foot circle of where that bed was and where I was the moment that Jesus entered my life. But when I got to school the next day, who had, in the second or third grade, first grade, a lady named Miss Hodges? That lady was scary. Whoa. She was the first person I told that I'd been saved. We would line up down by Mr. Tucker's office. You know, the pencil sharpener or the pencil machine was over here. You could buy a pencil for a couple of pennies or something. There was a pencil machine right there. And we'd line up at that pencil machine and they'd take us row by row into the cafeteria. And Mr. Tucker was standing there and I couldn't wait to tell him that I'd been saved. These aren't the same pews, but I was in the fourth one. And Thomas Lynn was standing about right here. When I walked those few feet to tell him what God had done and that I wanted to be baptized, I can tell you that encounter immediately put me into the ministry, even as an eight-year-old boy. Go with me to Luke chapter 8, just a couple of verses here. Again, I'm assuming by the crowd that's here that you know the story that goes before this as Jesus dealt with the gathering demoniac and all that had happened as he set this man free. But this is the end of the story with verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the country of the gatherings round about besought him to depart from them. They didn't want Jesus to hang around. They saw some weird stuff. Just weird enough to make sure that they wanted to make sure that he left because they didn't know if they could handle anymore. For they were taken with great fear and he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and show how great things God had done unto you. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. I don't know how to create an evangelist any faster. Do you think he had anything to say when he stood up to speak? 
Do you think they were shocked when they saw this man who just a few days before they couldn't hold in chains who lived out among the graves? They knew who he was and he stood up and he began to speak about the power of Jesus. Do you think anybody wondered if it was true? Do you wonder if anybody believed that he was changed in this moment? What happened to him? He went from someone so possessed by demons whose life was so controlled, a life surrendered, hopeless before mankind, but not before God. And Jesus in that moment allowed this man to go immediately. I mean, he wanted to go with Jesus as anybody would. If Jesus had just done that for me, I would want to be in the ship and never leave him. And Jesus said, no, that's not the great purpose for your life because now that this has happened, you need to go back to your own house. Begin there. Begin in your own home and tell them the great things that Jesus has done. Tell them the great things that God has done for you. He went from someone possessed whose life he did not even own anymore to someone who was free and immediately was in the ministry. You couldn't stop him. The fourth one, let's look at it quickly. Acts chapter 26, because this is where we find ourselves. Beginning with verse 12. Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining around about me and, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecute. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send you, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continued unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those that which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And here we have a man who best represents what holds us captive. What had him? What was Paul captive to? Religion. Bound up in the tradition bound up in the law, bound up in what had been written and in, in the writing of it, had so established it that it had to be adamantly defended, intolerant of everything that would come against that law, come against those practices, come against those feasts, and anything that was a threat. I want to tell you, he was a man captive to religion. You want to know what's going on in the Christian world today? Why God would say to us, they have a form of godliness, but they know not the power thereof. It's because church has become captive to religion. Even to the point, I've used this illustration many times. And I don't know where this happened. I don't know when in history this occurred. 
But when you go to church, that the quality of the service is based on how good the music was and how good the sermon was. And we have people leave and say, Pastor, that was a good message. Don't misunderstand me, but I mean this sincerely. I don't care. I don't care if it's a good message or not. I don't care if it was well prepared or well presented. If it didn't bring you into the presence of God, something was wrong. Church has become about what happens up front. And God said, I never intended that. Church was always about everybody here coming into the presence of the same God. Letting him deal with us on a personal basis. Letting him deal with us collectively as a corporate body. The greatness of a service doesn't depend on the quality of what happened. The service depends on whether or not we entered into the presence of God. Did he speak? Did he speak to me? Did he say something? big or small, that would establish that freedom in me, challenge me, tell me that he loved me, remove a burden, remove a struggle. Did I see in the others around me the very love and goodness of God? Did I enter into his presence? And again, I don't know where it happened. I do believe that when pastors really locked in on this statement that we're supposed to do things for God, and again, I would challenge you to pick this up at any time, especially in the New Testament, and begin reading, or if you prefer to go to a computer and put in the term for him or for Christ or for God, look it up in the New Testament and you'll find it about 10 to 15 times. But not in that list anywhere, however many times you find it, will you find a single instruction that God wants us to do something for him. What did that create? That teaching of doing something for God. Go for him, testify for him, give for him, show up for him, get involved for God. I hear it all the time in pastor from pastor after pastor. What are you doing for God? Well, I want to tell you, if you don't find it here, you don't dare preach it because it's heresy. It's not in here. He doesn't want us to do things for him. The phrase he uses is in him we live. In him we breathe. In him we have our being. He uses that term 150 to 200 times. But when their performance, how long they got to stay in a church, began to be measured by the size of the crowd, by the quality of the message, by the money that was in the bank, the growth possibilities, what plans do we have to change and to grow? When pastors began to be measured by that, they had to start using for him because they've got to get people engaged, get them involved and get them to where they'll stay and give their money. Fill the seat, give their money. That's how pastors are measured. We have one measurement here. You don't see anything posted. We report to you the things necessary to report. It's not a secret. But success in this church looks one way, our lives being changed. That's the only thing I can find in the New Testament that's worthy of being measured. Our lives being changed. Our people being set free. Are they finding the reality of God in their own story? And can they walk out of here knowing that God loves them? Unqualified, God loves them. All four of these stories have one thing in common. They all move from captivity to ministry. Paul's is deeply profound because God in that one told him very specifically, I want you to be a minister. I love Galatians 1. I love Paul describing himself, telling about how he came into this truth that he didn't learn this of men, but he learned it of God. And then begins to talk about himself as about the, being the terrorist that he was. That he was killing Christians, standing there again, as they, holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death. Ordering the death, ordering the capture of anybody that was a Christian. Because he, he felt that they were such a threat to the doctrine that he believed. But in Galatians 1 it says, but when it pleased God, he chose to reveal his son in me. 
Every one of us, if you're sitting here as a believer, have that same moment, but when it pleased God. If you're a Christian, you've got that same phrase in your testimony. You didn't choose him. He chose you. And then we got to say yes to whom he had chosen. Every one of these stories was born of faith. They all had to trust that the God who made this promise that I can restore you. I can deal with your rejection. I can deal with your blindness. I can deal with these demons. I can deal with your religion. But every one of them had to take this step of faith and step into that which God was offering. They had to receive it. Every one of them had to know that this was a work of the Spirit. This was not a behavior or an attitude adjustment. This was the Spirit of God falling on their story. They weren't taught how to behave differently, to have a better attitude about what was going on in their life so that they could live a better quality of life. God did not come to cope with the world. He came to overcome it. We cope. He came to overcome. Every one of these people learned the power of a proclamation. What were they simply doing? See, they received by faith the miracle that, that they had received. What were they doing now? Simply proclaiming that which God had done. We ask God and we ask God and we ask God as if he never, if he didn't do anything, we ask him for power as believers, his answer will always be no. We ask him for patience, his answer will be no. We ask him for peace, his answer will be no. Why would he say no to us? He can't give us what he's already given us. He didn't hold anything back when you became his child. He perfectly equipped you for the life set before you. When we ask for strength, we're just failing to recognize that all the strength of heaven has already been given. I learned this from Jay when he began to pray for us. Let the peace that he gave us when, he, when we became his child, let that peace rise up in us. You see, what happens in our life, we ask God and we ask God, and God's simply saying, I want you to begin to proclaim that which I've already given you. I want you to begin to tell of all those things I've already done. I want you to begin to proclaim the goodness that I've already shown you because there's such power in that proclamation. We say, Lord, give me strength. And he's saying, no, you don't need strength. What you need is to begin to proclaim that which I've already done. It will change your life and it will change others. Proclaim that which I have already done for you. Because when you begin to proclaim, it will invoke authority. And again, you don't have to become a great speaker. All you're doing is telling what God did for you. He has done remarkable things for you. He's dealt with your rejection if you've been rejected. He's dealt with a broken heart if your hearts have been broken. I don't, I don't want to embarrass her, but uh, Jessica and I go a long way back. We were sitting at United talking about her story, really discovering some things, understanding some things that God was showing us from her past. And, and I asked her, I said, are you ready to be free? Are you ready to let God do what only God can do in this moment? And she said, I sure am. So I'm thinking we're going to just kind of there in the dining area of United. I'm thinking we're going to sit there and we're going to say this prayer kind of quietly. And she said, no, I don't want to do it here. I said, okay. She thought for a second. She said, I know. So we went out and stood on the corner on the curb with the traffic coming and going. And that's where she was delivered from those things. See how appropriate the moment is? Because when she met God and God was changing this story, she was not ashamed for anybody to be seeing her where she was standing. I will never forget that prayer and for that moment that I spent with Jessica when God was setting her free from things within her story. She astounds me today. You want to see somebody who lives a very strange and unorthodox story before the Lord. She'll share testimonies with me from time to time about the miracles that God's doing. And there's no way to explain it except that God just did something miraculous. I get to hear it. I live in a very blessed place. 
There are others of you who are sitting in this room who we have had that same moment together. God's that good, that willing to set us free from that brokenness in the past. He's that willing and he's that ready. He will not tell you no because he wants to move you from captivity to a place where you'll have a proclamation that will come from your lips that will be very simple. This is what God has done. This is how he changed and did for me what only he could have done. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, for the witness in each of these stories. But I thank you also for the witness in each of the stories that sets before me tonight. Such radical changes in people. People willing to receive the teaching of the Holy Spirit. People willing to recognize the personal reality of a God that now lives in them. Not just a distant one that loves them, but one that now has taken up residence in us. Thank you, Lord, for the transformed lives where healing has come, restoration has come, repentance has come. Thank you, Lord, for the story after story that we see as you bring people to this emergency room with the urgent needs to find urgent answers. We know, Lord, that it's you, only you. We don't for a moment try to claim or share in the story. If it's not you, it's not worth telling. But when it's you, we have a proclamation to tell. Thank you for those who come tonight. Thank you, Lord, for their willingness to receive this truth and to let it change us in large ways and in small ways. Let it minister to our hearts. And all those things that we have done, all the controls that we have put in place trying to cope with the past, cope with the hurt, cope with the rejection. Let us understand, Lord, tonight that you have come, that we never have to feel rejected again. We don't have to not even, don't feel it. We have to know it. You took this woman by your willingness to speak, your willingness to teach her, and you told her how valuable she was. Let us understand that tonight about ourselves, how valuable we are to you, that we are worthy of your love and goodness, your kindness and truth, your salvation and promises. Let us recognize ourselves tonight by that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.